1: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk about science. Now, in 2020, we've talked a lot about science in public discourse. We have scientists or people claiming that they've heard from scientists telling us what to do. (laughs) We've We've had so many people on YouTube, Facebook, everywhere saying this, saying that, and there's a lot going around. And so, no better person that I know of than to ask our own Dr. Norman Horn, who is actually a scientist. He isn't just a great libertarian. He is also, his main occupation is being a scientist. So, Norman, thanks for being sort of like an official guest on the show now.
0: Ta-da! I guess it's a a first time for everything.
1: Yeah, right? (laughs) Like, normally it's like, hey, I'm co-hosting. Now it's like, I'm the guest. So, Anyway, yeah, one of the things that you know I do is I often will just send you a message or or call you and be like, okay, this scientist or somebody claiming to have heard from a scientist says this, 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 and this. I don't know how to think about that. And the reason I have to do that a lot, well, maybe not a lot, but enough, is that when I was in school, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to science because I wasn't interested, I didn't think it would matter to my life, and I just did not pay attention until I was like in my late 20s at all. And I mean, I remember basic things, but I just don't know how to analyze when people make scientific statements. And I also didn't go to college to do statistics and learn some of those measures that are helpful in when you hear people say that there are studies or research or this, you know, whatever comes out of this study from MIT or whatever it is. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do with that data because, you know, this person over here that I trust is using it in one way and this other person over here is using it another way and I kind of trust them too. And I'm like, I don't know who to trust. So that's why you're on. Because you're my guy that I talk <laughs> science to. So for our audience, they may not know a whole lot about you in that regard. So let's tell them what kind of scientist you are and what, what are some of the things that you do and have done that led you to where you are. Yeah, well,
0: for one thing, I would say that there's so much to know, and there's no possible way that you can be an expert in all of the topics. But that's not really the point of being a scientist, per se. It really is, a, it's about a method. It's about a way of thinking about things and a way of analyzing situations and problems in a cohesive and coherent manner. And so, you know, my background specifically is in chemistry and chemical engineering. I did my bachelor's degrees in those, uh, both of those, in fact. And then did my graduate work at the University of Texas in chemical engineering, while simultaneously actually doing the master's degree in theology as well. So it's it is kind of funny when we you know we you introduce me as Dr. Norman Horn. That's correct, and and it's funny that uh, you know a lot of times when I get introduced in places to speak or whatnot, it says that. But I'm, I'm often speaking about something that is you know not much to do with my my research as a scientist in that regard. It's usually. Mm-hmm. With regards to theology or something else, and uh, or, or libertarian thought, activism, whatever. And the interesting piece there is that even though that is, you know, my my profession is doing science and engineering, the method of solving problems and that critical thinking aspect does, you know, transfer over substantially into everything I do. So in that respect, at least you know, that, that's, a, that's, a, helpful, that's mm-hmm. a helpful thing to kind of keep in mind and remember. But yeah, that's, I've done a, a crazy amount of different types of, of work in the sciences because again, you know, what we're trained to do is to solve problems, to analyze situations and phenomena. So it's been my great pleasure and honor to work with a lot of different people in a lot of different topics from things like isomers of beta carotenes and particle technology to doing most of my grad work in polymer science. And then getting to do really cool work in flow chemistry and pharmaceutical API development at MIT, commercializing microwave technology, and now really working in the biosciences area in looking at antimicrobials, disinfectants, and UV disinfection technology for the healthcare industry and commercializing technology there. So that's definitely relevant to our world today. Yeah, it seem, seems like it, since it seems like everybody <laughs> and their dog wants to, you know, keep uh, disinfecting things on a, like, you know, minute-to-minute basis. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, that's definitely what's going on. It, um, it is
0: pretty cool to to actually, like, see my products actually out in the world, you know. Uh, I, I love hanging out at Panera, for instance, and they're actually a consumer of my tech
1: these days. It's pretty cool. <laughs> that's very cool. So... Right now, as I mentioned at the kind of opening of the show, the word science is getting thrown around a lot. And the one thing that I seem to feel like is happening is people who are in charge are wanting to use science sort of in the same way bad actors in religion want to use religion to control people. It's like, well, the science says, and therefore you just need to do what I tell you. And the phrase, the science says, is... I can identify it as problematic, but I don't know actually how to sort of elaborate why and how to somebody who is, you know, really enamored with the idea of science.
0: Yeah, and I, to go back to, you know, something I said just a moment ago, in fact, is that science, science is a method. So when to say, the science says, is not entirely accurate. I mean, you, you need to know what you mean when mm-hmm. you say such a thing. Scientists... Are saying things, mm. and they are using the scientific method to go about trying to make an assessment of a of a problem or some type of phenomena, but science doesn't say stuff, not really. so if you try to use that type of phrase as a bludgeon, <laughs> you're already I would say entering into the realm of like some real problematic language, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like proof texting and through the Bible on some level, yeah, mature Christians know that you don't just throw a verse out. Now, sometimes it's appropriate to just quote a verse. I mean, if somebody needs to calm down a little bit and you want to quote Psalms 23 at them, that's probably, it's not a bad thing. That's okay, right? That's okay. But, you know, you don't try and bludgeon somebody to death off of one verse to make your point. Mm -hmm. You realize that you have to go through more of a conversation. You have to do more of a comprehensive evaluation of whatever you're trying to make your point in scripture for. You know, mm-hmm. it, as libertarians, libertarian Christians, we, for instance, would say you can't bandy about with Romans 13 and just yep. say you've solved all the problems of, of uh, the relationship of the Christian to the state. So, likewise, I would kind of say that by analogy, that that's kind of what you're doing when you say, well, the science says. And there's a time and place to say something like the science says, but it's not to try and bludgeon somebody into submission.
1: Mm. Would that place be when you're using it as shorthand for the science says, and then you know something like the theory of gravity, which is pretty well established in practical use at least? Well, yeah, I mean that's why it's all, <laughs> gravity is a
0: law. I mean <laughs> the law of gravity is a thing. So <laughs> yeah, there's so there's probably there's a time and place for it, I would imagine, but it's not to try and bludgeon somebody into submission. I think there are lots of phrases that get thrown about like this, and we just need to be really careful. As scientists, especially because you know, just like Christians do these sorts of things about proof text. I mean, it's just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you don't try to proof text at times, and you don't even accidentally fall into it. It's a trap. Yeah. Okay. And so scientists do this, and we should try to. You know, we need to keep ourselves honest. In fact, that was something that I think was really, really important to my graduate advisor, and something he just drilled into me. Uh, this idea that you know to be super clear about what it is that you are trying to say when you are describing and arguing for your point of view about a phenomena or a theory or whatever mm-hmm. right to be very very careful about describing what it is that you know what it is that you suspect or think is probably true and you have re- maybe reason to believe it versus the things that you're you know you kind of just moderately think that this might be the case <laughs> in other words differentiating where you have a hypothesis that you have yet to test And that you suspect might be something that is worth considering, versus okay, I've done a lot of thinking, I can't prove it, or I can't necessarily support this in full, but I think this is really like a strong argument for this, versus I am describing the actual data that I took down.
1: Right. Right.
0: (laughs) And the conclusions therein. Like that, there's there are differences, and the language that we use there is really important. I believe very strongly that a hallmark of science or a hallmark of good science, good scientists, is humility and honesty. The, the humility to know or to be able to admit the limitations of what you've done in terms of your experimentation and your elaboration upon the data and so on. And honesty, that you absolutely can only say that which the data allows you to say. And that you're not describing it in such a way or trying to conclude things from it that are not warranted. So in other words, okay. it's all the hallmarks of just good argumentation in general, but being mindful of the fact that we use a different method than deductive logic at times. We use yeah. inductive experimentation. And that's how we get that's how we do physical science.
1: So it's funny that those characteristics of like doing good science don't really like those are not traits you would find in the way politicians speak. Oh, good Lord, no. I mean, because they, they have to always come across as being so sure of themselves
0: and being absolutely certain because they can't be tentative. Yeah. There, there there's only
1: a hundred percent conclusions and nothing else. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. We kind of, we kind of know this in the way. So when it comes to making decisions, forget politicians for just a second, actually, I'd like to forget them all together, but you know, for the sake of this discussion, yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. in terms of like personal decisions, right? So we, we've had a lot of personal decisions that we've had to make in 2020 that has to do with the risk of catching a virus, the risks of being near other people who we might infect, and all those kinds of things. And then just even before COVID, we make decisions that are, that could be informed by science. And in fact, are, even though we're not thinking of them that way. Like, we, we know germ theory, even though we don't... I mean, I couldn't explain to you germ theory, <laughs> but I know, I know why I need to know that it exists, right? Sure. And so, we do things on a practical level that are based in science, but we're not always able to, like, articulate it. And sometimes those things come to us in ways that are like, well, wait, I don't know about this. Well, how do I figure it out? Like, the fir- one, first thing that comes to my mind with this is something like, you know, the kinds of food that you eat... Whether or not chemicals sprayed on your lawn will affect the garden adjacent to your lawn and the vegetables you eat, those kinds of questions that are, you know, they seem to be scientific questions for me. It's like, well, I don't know who to trust. I don't know. I don't know how to make a decision on this. You know, should I eat these foods that are on this list or should I not? Those kinds of things. For on a personal level, how do we make good decisions about sometimes life and death choices, but other times it's just, you know, slightly better versus slightly worse choices.
0: Oh man, this gets very, very complicated because we...
1: Well, you're never going to be a politician if you're willing to say those words.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's okay. I mean, I have it on fairly good authority. I use the word authority here that my mother would shoot me if I uh, decided to become an actual politician. So, Uh, you know... yeah, you know, it's just the, it's the way she is. Doesn't and she has the <laughs> means, I believe. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the, it's the way things are. So, you know, I'm not becoming a politician. That's the way things are. <laughs> Besides, science is more fun. But it is a very complicated question because let, let's let's face it, you know, we do not understand the fundamental science behind the overwhelming majority of the things that we interact with on a daily basis. I mean, take case in point what we are doing right now where we are recording on microphones that use electromagnetic signals to transmit over the internet and wireless and who who knows what through hard drives ram processors and thousands of miles of fiber you know optic cable to record onto little bitty bits of magnetically stored information <laughs> and and it's just it's it's mind-boggling yeah. to think about all of the things that are behind that and yet it all works and so so in the same way that like you do not know how say a pencil is made and that seems like a fairly simple object I'm referring of course to the classic essay by Leonard Reed I pencil mm-hmm. to illustrate the complexities of the structure of production and and why it's important that you can't have central planning well similarly there's no way that you will be able to know everything out there in order to come to some comprehensive understanding of everything that you use and use and abuse <laughs> around you to make life work. And I think that even gets even muddier when you start thinking about biology. I mean, oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. If there's anything that I've learned over the course of the last, few, you know, three years doing so much more work in biosciences that I had ever done, you know, in, historically, uh, it's that. The systems that we work in there are inordinately complicated, even for something as simple as an antimicrobial mechanism. Which every week I learn new things, and it's uh, it's mind blowing all the time. Mm. So yeah, it, it's it is really difficult to come to a uh, like a thoroughgoing understanding of uh, of how to make all these decisions. Other than we are always. Trusting somebody else on some level for some measure of the data, facts, and applications of the things that we use, the results often speak for themselves. I mean that that's one thing you know you could kind of get to off the top. Mm-hmm. If it, obviously, if like if this recording didn't work tomorrow, uh, which if anybody's listening to this, obviously it worked. Then we would stop trusting in the the <laughs> the, the means of right. technology that get us there. Yeah. Okay. Or we would switch over to some alternative. And then we would try that. And if it worked, we'd keep going. And the way we would make choices as as to whether or not we would continue on with a particular uh, line of action is, does it actually make economic sense for us to continue doing so?
1: Right. So
0: that kind of illustrates on some level the way in which we will go about making these decisions, which is that we are always economizing on our time, efforts, and assessments of risk an opportunity cost as to why we might choose one line of technology over another in order to accomplish some sort of goal.
1: Okay. So that, that makes complete sense. I'm going to push into that question a little bit because there's a lot of things that we can choose in our daily life that we won't know for a good number of years. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is to go on your analogy there of like, you know, if this podcast didn't work, we would use some other technology or we'd find something else to do. Let's go to the food section here for a second and say, okay, well, if I keep eating lots and lots of carbs, I gain weight. If I stop doing that and if, and if I exercise, I lose weight. But there are things that are taking place inside in our brain, in our gut, in other places in our bodies that are sort of like long-term, and so things like, I'll just use this as a claim, that people who have like, I can't even think of the, I'm drawing a blank on it right now, but like have a certain deficiency in omega fish oils are more prone to things like Alzheimer's. Sure, okay. That's going to be very difficult. So what I have to do now in my 30s is take a lot of fish oil just in case when I'm in my 70s, I don't get Alzheimer's for until three years later than I would if I hadn't taken them or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. you know, and and so, I mean, cigarettes that's like a really you know nicotine that's like a really easy thing i mean there's been lots of science behind that but what do we do when it's like okay so we've got this guy who's a doctor and also has these other certificates telling us one thing and then there's but then i hear people like matt ridley who i totally trust who's kind of like yeah those are you know traditional modern medicine is just fine like, there's a lot of things going on there in in that but i think you understand my basic point what do we do when we don't have good feedback in the short term?
0: On some level, it is the same type of economizing question. There's an opportunity cost to doing one thing over another. And so, you know, there, there could be a variety of different ways in which that can turn out. For instance, if you're like, okay, well, it, it seems like that omega-3 fish oils or whatever are going to help you diminish your risk of Alzheimer's. Cool. Fish oil, the fish oil that you need to buy costs you a million dollars a year. Are you going to do that? Right, no, right. No, of course. Nobody not. would, right? Okay. The fish oil your supply of fish oil, it's gonna cost you a dollar a year. Would you do that?
1: Well, yeah.
0: Because the risk is low and the and the cost is doesn't seem you know exorbitant. So somewhere in the middle there, you have a cutoff point. There's a point at which like and it's it's just a you know an ordinal set of priorities yep, yep. that you set for yourself. So you're you're constantly economizing on these types of decisions, and so you're Assessing your own risk profile, you know, for instance, what is your family history? There's all sorts of things in there, and to some extent, you you have to do one of two things. You either you're going to economize, no matter what, one way or another. Sure. Like if yeah. if it costs you a million bucks, it doesn't matter how good it is. You're probably not going to do it. Like I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's just a fact, right? But and if it's just a dollar, well, maybe that's fine or whatever. But other than that like the way the next way to kind of go about understanding whether or not it's beneficial is to okay do the research like the, and then there are multiple yeah. levels of that research there's reading what other people have written there's going to the peer reviewed literature there's interviewing other doctors there's running your own level of experiments both on a personal level or trying to flat out run your own clinical yeah or okay. something to that effect so there's any number of ways you can do it the amazing thing is that even though it may seem inaccessible Almost to a T, everything you want to know is out there, and it just takes time and effort in order to go and, and learn and do. So at that point, you're economizing on your time. At what point are you going to choose to do one thing over another?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's really good advice, you know. And I think that's it's also very practical in one sense, and it also, you know it's personal and it's practical because I can actually do it. Like I don't have to rely on people to tell me what to do, like in yeah. the politician scenario where it's like, hey, right. you have to wear this or you have to stay this far away or whatever it might be. These are things that I can do, you know, in that conversation we're having here about like personal yeah. choices with food, health and things like that. That's that's one thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you when you call me or something and you you have a question on some type of science thing, part of the reason you're doing that is you are economizing on your time. You're trying to leverage okay, I know that Norman has expertise in area X, Y, Z. Right, right, And if I can ask this question and leverage Norman's knowledge, then I can save a lot of time, you know, because I might, I might trust Norman to give me an honest answer
1: uh, yeah, to okay. see if I
0: can't shortcut my way into something else. And that's what we got do. It, all got it, got it. Yeah,
1: no, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And honestly, I mean, that's why we look to certain resources versus others is because we want to economize our time or we're like, oh my goodness, I got to eat as much of this up as I want because I value what I'm doing with my time so much that that's what I want to spend doing. Like I could do the research to sort of maybe get up to speed on a lot of these things in a way that you are, but that would take me weeks, maybe months if that's all I did. And, you know, I'd rather have a 20 minute phone (laughs) phone call with you. Yeah, yeah. So, and so in some of our conversations, one of the things that you have that we've talked about is this phrase, <laughs> believing in science. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> and this one this sometimes requires a drink <laughs> to, yeah. to have a con- to lengthy conversation, oh. but it kind of gets on your nerves when people say that word, even though on the one hand, you kind of know what they mean. It's just a bad phrase. And why don't you talk about that? Yeah.
0: So I'm definitely, I do not like the phrase, I believe in X, YZ science. Because the connotation therein is just really awkward. Because we come to know things in different ways. And I do not think that when you use verbiage, like, I believe in something like this, that you are really communicating that which is is important about what it is that you're saying. (laughs) And that's let me unpack that, because that might sound a little weird we could probably describe this in a couple different ways, but let's try, try this. Sure. For one thing, when we use the word believe, sometimes we talk about it in terms of a measure of faith, okay? And we all, as Christians, have, have heard the lectures about what it means to have faith in something. And what we believe is important, okay? The ideas that we hold in our head are important. But when we say like, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus, I am putting my belief in a person and that person is someone who is knowable, I believe in God in a way that is different than I understand that one plus one equals two, for instance. You know, Doug, if I ask you, like, okay, Doug, prove to me that one plus one equals two, you would say, well, that's kind of silly because that's kind of definitional. Okay, Mm -hmm. and you'd be right. Okay, you know, Doug, prove to me the Pythagorean theorem. Okay, well, that would cause you to put forward a series of premises and then put together a logical argument in order to demonstrate how the, you know, the Pythagorean theorem works in, in mathematics. But if I also, if I then said, Doug, prove to me that your wife loves you, uh, well, what would that look like? Well, that would look like some, a totally different way of
1: knowing. Yeah. You might describe well, the it. The word prove doesn't even feel right in that sort of. Exactly. Exactly. Scenario.
0: And so that's part of the problem here is that if we're trying to describe two kind of different ways of knowing, then we shouldn't use the same verbiage for them. <laughs> so believing in science has this almost religious connotation to it that you should not have when it comes to actually doing science. Hmm. And that's, what I, that's a lot of what I would get at in this, in this respect. Even if what it takes in order to accept or, or think correctly about science involves talking with other people and trusting in the propositions that they are making about things. It is different than knowing a person, that like knowing God, believing mm-hmm. in God, or knowing that your wife loves you, or being mm-hmm. able to know something about your children or something to that effect. That's a very they're very different things. Okay. They are not categorically the same. So that's why I don't like the idea of of saying, "Oh, I just believe in
1: science or trust the science." Is I believe in the scientific method better or no? Uh, I'm going I'm just going to say no. <laughs> okay. I,
0: I don't uh, may, with the caveat that I might have to correct myself, but I don't want to go to that length to try and understand or or try and explain it. I mean At that point, you're almost getting like on the verge of presuppositionalism. I mean, some
1: because like we could just keep on regressing back and forth there. Well, the reason I ask that is that when people say I believe in science, they might not realize the sloppy thinking, and they might hear you say what you just said a little bit ago, is like, well, yeah, 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 I don't, I don't mean it in that way. I just mean that, like, I. Yeah. I know that the scientific method has helped us, you know, know so many things. And so I know that it's going to help us understand climate science. how right. All that and, kind of stuff. And
0: yeah, a lot of so, people would... So would I refer- believe in
1: science is a shorthand for them. So I'm kind of giving them a little bit of benefit of the doubt. You're,
0: you're absolutely right. And I mean, I understand where they're trying to go with that. And that's why I would go back to saying then then clarity is of utmost importance here. Because otherwise, you will start getting into sloppier and sloppier thinking and explanations. Yeah. And that's, again, going back to what is the hallmark of good science, Doug? Honesty, humility. So yeah. let us tailor the way that we talk about these things in such a way that it, it is clear and
1: unambiguous as to what we mean when we yeah. make these types of proclamations. And my first thought when someone might, might say, well, I believe in a scientific method, you know, forget the sloppy phrasing for the sake of this conversation is like, well, the scientific method as performed by which scientists and how do you know whether they're the ones who are honest, humble and trustworthy. And, you know, and then you get into the, like, who are they paid by? And you get all those sort of like those level arguments. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not
0: even a big fan of that because I think it's way too easy to go to like source of funding as being like, well, look, the Coke brothers founded this project i guess that yeah, that's got to right. be a problem and and, yeah. and likewise the libertarian might say well you know the you know, the NIH funded that project therefore it must be a problem or Pfizer did that drug therefore it yeah. must be a problem or something like that i don't think that's a good argument that's like they're trying to shorthand discredit the data and like mm-hmm. the, if they've got the data they have the data you don't have to resort to these sorts of, of shorthand arguments in order to just like get to right. an immediate conclusion. And the conclusion. data is out there
1: to be disproven by others.
0: It has to be because yeah. for multiple reasons, like you, for one thing, you know, any of this stuff is going to start off in the literature, the open literature for some, the scientific journals
1: and whatnot. Well, unless you're Neil Ferguson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, that was a cheap shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, all
0: right. <laughs> but, but yeah, like these things
1: are all out there. So you, you don't have to resort to these sorts of things first. So this actually brings us to the discussion about science and our faith and the Bible and things, because, you know, when we talk about the scientific method being done by certain humans, right, and we have to be like, well, you know, how do we know how to trust them or whatever, and, and it's that scientists are doing the scientific method, right? Like you said that earlier. Yeah. And when we think about the way in which we approach the scriptures and the way that we look at things, I have felt like Christians tend to put science versus the Bible. And maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't even seem to be sort of like in the same category. And maybe it's because we've sloppily thought of the whole, like, I believe in science versus I believe the Bible, right? Like and we're both. And so the can you help us clarify that thinking up a little bit?
0: Well, the first the first problem there is the use of the word versus. Oh my goodness. Like this is mm. this is the worst. If there's anything that the atheistic worldview, the naturalist world like the materialist rather worldview yeah. has has really battled with us on and and made their own measure of progress, it is in the use of the word science versus the Bible. What a maddening phrase to me. It is absolutely the most, one of the most intellectually dishonest pieces of garbage that exists today. Because if it were not for the Christian faith and the progress of, of a particular worldview, which we can get into momentarily, if it weren't for the Christian worldview, and, and we'll posit that there are other portions of other worldviews that have added into that as well, in particular, that. For instance, we call them Arabic numerals for a reason, uh, and things like that. But if it weren't for these types of things, science would modern science wouldn't exist. I mean, come on. Yeah. So this is this is foolishness to think that there is some sort of dichotomy between people of faith and people who use this scientific method. That's absolute yeah. malarkey. It needs to be thrown out into the garbage bin of history. Right, okay. Well, so
1: tell us what you really think. Uh, tell, us, yeah, tell us what you really <laughs> think.
0: <laughs> well, it is important to distinguish in the same way that we, and we describe the different ways of coming to know first people. And, and we even talked about this in the way of how do you come to know God? Well, God is mm-hmm. a person. You don't know God in the same way that you know that and this antimicrobial silver over here uh, uses an ion exchange mechanism to kill a bacteria that alights on its surface. It's a different form of knowing. Yeah. And so to equate those as being they somehow in conflict with one another is is beyond, is unfathomably dumb. <laughs> like it is, and it's the the materialist who wants to to cause this sort of uh, mental fracture and fractionation of peoples ultimately that is really the problem here. That's never meant to be the case. It was never, like, if it weren't for Christians who made progress, and why, why did they make that progress, by the way? It's because they had a particular view of the world. And that, that is, their worldview was that God created this world in an orderly and knowable manner. Mm-hmm. And that is starkly in contrast to the way in which the peoples of antiquity thought about this universe. They thought of it as chaotic, as unknowable, as completely uh, random.
1: Arbiter, and even though yeah. there, is,
0: there is a sense of randomness about us, uh, quantum theory and whatnot, uh, and, and chaos theory even, the world is still knowable. It is still able to be analyzed. And we have we are constantly coming up with better and better means of understanding it and modeling it and coming to a greater approximation of what is happening underneath the surface.
1: Yeah, so you're saying that a materialist should at least acknowledge and appreciate that the origins of the scientific, what we would call modern science, came from people who had a belief that God wanted the world to be knowable. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so what, what would you have to say to Christians who sort of fall into the science versus the Bible or science versus faith dichotomy to think more correctly? Well, first off, realize you've been lied to. (laughs) okay all right
0: done we're good (laughs) now what (laughs) and just realize that that science on some level is almost on the verge of worship and I and I say that very carefully but the the reason I say it is that the process of discovery about what God has created has got to be done in a in a manner that is appreciative and thankful and glorifying of of his of his work, mm. and so that is a beautiful thing, because when you look at the dominion mandate, you cannot help. And this is this is in like the scientists or the, uh, the Christians who kind of heralded the modern science, you know, in the beginnings of it and all that. They took heart from the way in which God describes His universe, even as a garden and that it is meant to be cultivated and learned about. And it comes through effort. It doesn't come through just like this automatic transference of knowledge.
1: Yeah, it doesn't right.
0: come by, by no effort at all. It comes through work. And God invites us to participate in that. So by doing good science and understanding what's going on in the world from basic natural phenomena, we are doing something that is inherently activating God's original intent for humanity. To go and learn about the world, make use of it, understand it, change it, transform it into something great. Yeah. Because it like if God wanted to create a, a complete and utterly perfect world, he could have done it and there wouldn't have been anything to do. <laughs> but he, he, he created things good and things that we could go in and learn about and cultivate and, and work with and create from and co-create with him. Doing yeah. science is just part yeah. of that.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, that sounds like a really great way to end, but I actually have a few more questions. So we're gonna oh, we're gonna okay. go with that. <laughs> Proceed on. <laughs> well, and this this actually relates to the the more specifically the libertarian aspect of things. And that has to do with things like, you know, we we do live in a world where the government is part of education. We can sort of opt out of that most of us can opt out of that, in term, at least in theory. We may not, may not always, you know, have the opportunity to do that, but we're not mandated to all go to government schools, okay, or for our children to. So there's a sense in which we can bow out of that. But there's a lot of say that the government and the state has in how our children are educated, what they're taught. And then as libertarians, we wrestle with, well, how do we handle that? And then what would happen in sort of a fully free society with a market and education. We have all those questions. We've had a lot of answers about that. But it really does come down to who gets to teach what to whom. Yep, it sure does. And, that's, and I think that's kind of the
0: primary problem with a lot of the, the conflicts that do come up that are supposedly about science, and, uh, especially in education. They're not really about science per se, though. They're really about power struggles. And I, I think that's really the problem. That if it wouldn't be an issue at all if it weren't a matter of like, well, who gets who gets to say who's going to teach what and who and who it gets taught to. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like going back to the arguments of being about like prayer in schools and even like stuff like that. There's a very only a very limited amount of neutrality that can come in even in educational ventures. So we can kind of admit that from the outset. But even so, that you know, the more that you involve the state in these sorts of affairs, the less neutral that will become. And then the more, the, the, or rather, as you begin to move away from that measure of neutrality, the more conflicts that are going to come into being on the basis, very simply, that people want different things. <laughs> and all those things, people could have all of what they wanted if they didn't rely upon the government to force everybody else to pay for it. And mm. so what does this do? This conflict of resources ends up, you know, breeding more and more conflict in general. And, that you get the world that we have
1: and it sucks. (laughs) So let's wrap up with talking about our current state of affairs. We are in the midst of a pandemic and there are decisions that have to be made. We have to make individual choices on, you know, how obedient we're going to be to the state. (laughs) (laughs) And also we want to balance that with being safe and cautious with our families and ourselves and the people who, whom we love. And I don't think it's helpful to get into specific debates over, you know, should you wear a mask or all those kinds of things. It's kind of maybe too specific for where I want to have this conversation. Yeah. But we do need to sort of make good choices and be thoughtful without being, I want to say pushovers where we just accept what one what the experts supposedly tell us and they may be right, they may not be. How do we handle that sort of... Amb- it seems like there's a lot of ambiguity. This year yeah. is about ambiguity <laughs> patience. In the max. <laughs> yes. <laughs> ambiguity, patience, and like, oh my gosh, if there was a dose of humility in politics, we, we would have gotten through this year a whole lot better. But anyway, oh, what, yeah. what are your thoughts here?
0: Well, if you take a lot of the things that I've already said tonight in, into consideration, you can kind of begin to parse out so many of the things that went wrong this year with regards to the honesty aspect, the humility aspect, uh, the difference in methodology aspect. I think that a lot of the problem uh, has come on some level from this misunderstanding from even the population standpoint as to what is being done you know, when we do science in general. I, mm-hmm. I, I know you didn't want to really get into specifics, but I, I, there are some kind of almost oh, ca- sure. case study examples of this year that I think are really like almost case in point. For instance, I I think this is almost (laughs) unilaterally now agreed upon. But like hydroxychloroquine, for instance, uh, is a great actual example as to science proceeding on fast forward mode to try and get to a better answer than what we had before. And because we went from, you know, this sense very early in the uh, throes of of SARS-CoV-2 coming into being that like, oh my goodness, hydroxychloroquine appears to my, it might have a, it might have a positive effect. And so that spurred on very quickly a series of studies to try and understand, well, to what extent does it work? I mean, it appeared to be cheap. So like, and it appeared to, based on some evidence that without getting into the the nitty gritty details, it had to do with some kind of, we might say like experiments uh, that showed certain types of in vitro efficacy. And then by analogy, we could make a, a case for why it should work in vivo or in the, in, in a living organism. And, uh, and that's why they, they went, okay, well, this means that because of that, it, it seems to be a relatively safe drug overall that we could probably try and make a, a series of studies to see if it actually has, you know, clinical efficacy. And so we went from, hey, like, there's this excitement. Hey, we have this possible solution. We should do something about it. To going into clinicals and seeing, okay, does our hypotheses here work in practice? And then the data started coming out really in July, and it was kind of saying, well, actually, it doesn't seem to really be that great. There's no definitive data that demonstrates that it's in a placebo double-blind trial that it's going to be, that it's going to work, which is the best way that we know to try and get to clinical efficacy. And so, but then you had. Uh, some people that were would said, "Well, wait, you know what about this? what about this? What about this and then more studies kept on coming out where they were make they were testing those hypotheses at the same time, yeah. so and, the
1: incentive the motivation was there for obvious reasons, and there's also yes. there was also incentive and this is where you talk about economizing what we 're doing it's like yeah. okay, now 's the time to put all of our resources into solving this one big problem.
0: It was amazing because like normally that would go very slowly. But because of the, the right. import of the situation, it went remarkably fast. And stuff got right, published. Right. And then there were things like there were retractions and all of this stuff. And people were going all up in arms about like, oh my gosh, why why is there this retraction? And and why is why are we getting conflicting information and all this? Why can't we just because have a definitive answer? Because because this is the feature, not the bug. Yes. Okay. This is that's actually a terrible
1: fun, man. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> that wasn't even intended. I actually like using I the know. phrase in general, but this is like this is a feature. This is not yeah. a bug because the way these things work is through experiments, inductive reasoning. It is not a deductive process whereby you just go one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four, therefore four plus four equals eight. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. There's there's a whole lot more that goes into it. Admittedly, there's a lot of statistics and things that you have to do to kind of understand the way in which you derive what is efficacious and what is not. Um, but overall, we're, we got to this answer. And even though there was all this hullabaloo in July and early August about, oh, well, we should keep going with hydroxychloroquine. Well, you know, do you think that Donald Trump took it when he got COVID last week? Turns out he didn't. Well, mm-hmm. I guess that answers the problem, isn't it? Because that was the, you know, he was so he, so, he sounded so sure early on that, oh my goodness, we got to, oh, okay, guess what? Didn't work. And that's okay. Because... That's the beauty. That is the beauty of this method is that we have a means by which we can understand how to get closer and closer and closer to right answers through yeah. better experiments, better data, analysis, conversation, and uh, and presentation to our peers, revision, retesting, all of that. All of that's important. And uh, I, I think that's watching this all happen in fast forward mode has been really illustrative to me as to how stuff actually plays out in practice in ways Mm -hmm, that I hadn't mm -hmm. exactly seen in the same type of manner in before. Yeah. So it's a good example of why it's important to have a measure of honesty and humility about your proclamations. Because on the one hand, we saw braggadocio and, and surety coming from certain areas, which ended up not being correct. Why? Because there was more data that needed to be given and provided. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? I mean, all I can... Actually, there's like two things. Number one is that I would just emphasize to all of our listeners, especially if you're a young a young person out there interested in doing science, I hope this is exciting to you. There's so much more to learn. And I, I can't tell you how cool it is to have been involved now in for nearly 20 years in, in training and, and being a professional in, in the scientific community and learning as much as I have. I can barely describe any... Field that is better for training one's mind to do really, really interesting work. Uh, so, to our young people out there, I definitely encourage you to you know consider it. If you have a penchant for doing science and math, keep it up. It's a great way. It's a great way to live. Secondly, you know, get out there and learn, guys. If you're you know you may be in your professional career already, it's never too late to learn a little bit more science and to improve your your means of argumentation, your understanding of the world. It's never too late. And there's so many better ways of learning it now than in any other time in human mm. history. It's unbelievable what's out there. And then finally, I recommend a couple of uh, resources that I think are really cool and just neat to to kind of uh, browse through and understand and learn more about science and government and whatnot. I'll recommend the book, a recent book. We haven't been able to get them on the podcast, but uh, a book called Scientocracy published by the Cato Institute. The authors are Michaels and Keeley. Terrence Keeley is a great guy. And Michaels is, a, is also an excellent scholar. Uh, these guys, it's an edited book. Uh, it's terrific work in talking about various types of the interactions of science, uh, scientists and government and the ways in which scientific data has been misused in, uh, in the public square. Another book that I think is really good to learn from is uh, What is This Thing Called Science by Alan Chalmers. Also, the works of John Polkinghorne are really great as well to learn more about the kind of intersections of science and theology. And there's so, much, there's so many things out there to learn. Like you just, you, you'll never exhaust learning about the natural world and God's creation if you set out to do it. It's pretty fun.
1: Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate having this conversation for the sake of our listeners, because, you know, I would, I would have asked you all these questions eventually if we were <laughs> talking about them. So, <laughs> so we why get, not do we it get, publicly? <laughs> why not do it publicly? That's right. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. See ya.
0: Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com.